for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Teaching text is Psalm 42, and it begins, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul, I got it, I got it. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. But my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I'll remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, potentially how you say it. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs His love. At night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. This is the Word of God for the people of God, and everyone said, thanks be to God. God. You can be seated. Just give me, yeah, there we go. Okay, friends. Well, for the season of Lent, we are in the Psalms. I never taught through the Psalms like this before. Uh, It's been actually really helpful for me. And and the Psalms give us this, this way of training into an emotionally healthy conversational life with God. And by emotionally healthy, we mean that it's giving us space and permission and some how-tos on on the ways we can express the full range of things that we think and feel as creatures, and to do all of this without fear of judgment. To have an emotionally healthy life with God is to feel like I can put it all out there without fear of reprisal, without God wagging His finger at me. There's space to do this. And as, if you've been around recent weeks, we've read some things that ended up in the canon of the Bible, and you're like, are we allowed to say that to God? That's an emotionally healthy life with God. Now, an emotionally unhealthy life with God it has a very truncated experience of human emotions, meaning we think there's a very limited supply of things that we could say to God that are approved. We might feel the need to contort our mood or our feelings to being joyful or happy or pleasant or grateful all the time when we all know in reality we are not pleasant and joyful and grateful and happy and content all the time. Uh, I didn't think about this. Uh, there's this a song we sang in church when I was a kid. I'm in right, up, right, down, right, something happy all the time. I'm in right, up, something, something happy all the time. Since Jesus Christ came in and took away my sin, I'm da, 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 happy all the time. I just remembered that. 
Yes, we should be happy. Jesus is in our lives. Our sins have been forgiven. And yet we're not happy all the time. And to force ourselves into feeling that way feels unnaturally because it's not human. It doesn't respect that we were created with limitations. We were created with these feelings and we need to have space to deal with them. And I believe that in Christ we are so completely safe with our Creator that we can say the things that are on our hearts. We can process our complicated emotions with Him and do it in a a place of utter safety. God can handle it. But it's difficult for us to do. As a person who, like, conflict is difficult, saying, saying negative emotions is difficult for me, we need to be trained so that we know actually how to do it. And we've been given a training guide in the book of Psalms. Uh, four weeks ago, we looked at how the book of Psalms train us to be honest. We can be completely candid with God. Uh, the following, we, we talked about how the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of lament, give us some space and blueprints for how to process grief and sadness. And then last week, my, my pal Jason Jackson was here and was teaching from the imprecatory Psalms, which sounds like it should be a bad word, imprecatory but it's the cursing psalms. It's like, I hate that person and I want violence done to them. Like, slit their throats, God. It's those kind of psalms which give us space to process our anger and our rage. And today, we're going to pick up a kind of psalm of lament and a kind of imprecatory psalm, and it's on the theme of dealing with the distance of God. Now, some of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this. Some of you know what it's like to go through seasons where you feel like no one up there is taking your calls. Where you were pleading with God to intervene in a specific way and it didn't happen the way that you were hoping for. You're like, what the heck? Is anybody there? There's the, the intense feeling of the distance of God. Now, we must understand that when I say the distance of God, we have to appreciate that this is accommodating language, meaning God is, of course, never far off from us. One smart person said that God is even more present in the room than we are. But to say that God is distant is to appreciate that we have an experience of the distance of God. It accommodates our human frailties and limitations. There are times that we feel really close, and there are times where it feels like like maybe God doesn't even exist. We feel the distance. On Good Friday, we'll remember the words of Jesus on the cross where He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's, of course, quoting Psalm 22, the opening lines of Psalm 22. You should go and read the rest of the psalm. But, but in that moment, Jesus is taking up all of the pain of humanity on himself on the cross. Of course, the Father did not and cannot turn his face away from the Son, as is popularly sung in, in songs from time to time. Jesus on the cross is identifying fully with humanity's pain and feelings of forsakenness that all of us experience from time to time on the cross. I would contend that no matter what other labels we might put on it, the the primary, the core pain and the primary tragedy of the human experience is alienation from God as a result of sin. Uh, How does sin affect us, Kyle? Sin alienates us from from God, from my neighbor, from God's good creation and myself. Sin has this natural uh, outworking effect on us and on the world. It messes everything up. 
No longer do we, like Adam and Eve, walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. We instead feel this gap, this distance. We're hiding, we're pretending, and sometimes we feel it painfully so. I don't recommend almost any of the music that I regularly listen to, generally because I listen to very depressing music. Don't be worried about me, I am fine. But uh, for those of you who are indie music people, I am deliberately earning street cred in this moment. Uh, there's a, uh, there was a super group called Monsters of Folk a couple of years ago. It was the, you know, M. Ward and the lead singer from My Morning Jacket and a couple of the people from Bright Eyes. And they put out this, this, this super album with the opening track called Dear God. And it is so painful. And in the song, these, these guys who are not followers of Jesus, not believers, wrote in the third verse, they said, Dear God, I wish that I could touch you. How strange, sometimes I feel I almost do, and then I'm back behind the glass again. There are those euphoric moments where it feels like the veil is just so thin, and then moments where you're back to reality and the gap is there. God, what keeps you out, it keeps me in. There's distance. They say, well, I've been thinking about it and I've been breaking it down without an answer. I know I'm thinking aloud, but if your love's still around, why do we suffer? Connor Oberst, one of the singers in that, lost his brother around that time. And I think, man, his adult brother. He's thinking, I'm back behind the glass. Why are we suffering? Connor Oberst, in another, on another album, one of his, had a song called Triple Spiral. Again, depressing. And by Triple Spiral, he's talking about the Trinity. And he's saying, I loved you, triple spiral, father, son, and ghost. But you left me in my darkest hour when I needed you, when I needed you. And now the dream is over. I want it to be known. I never saw it coming from my little human prism. How sad it is to know I'm in control. Like this feeling that like there's no divine order. Everything is just chaos and I have to rule my own little universe. These songwriters name a pain, a universal pain. It's ubiquitous. All of us feel these things from time to time. For them, it's a pain that's just lingering unresolved, that God was not present to them in the way that they hoped that He would be. Now, as followers of Jesus, we believe that the pain of the feelings of God's distance will one day be met and resolved like a balm with the gift of His presence. The second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21 John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now, say it with me, among the people. He will dwell with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There will come a day when the fourth and fifth verses of all those hymns you sang growing up will come true. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. But we have not yet reached that day in full. Susan, seated right here, is in our church. And a couple of weeks ago, um, I was uh, teaching you all about how to write a psalm of lament. And several of you sent the reflections to me. Sandy sent me something that was just beautiful. And Susan wrote a psalm of lament that uh, she gave me permission to share. Hey, I think I got messed up here on my slide. Would you take me to the one that says, uh, oh, no, no, it's here. That's why I messed up. Susan wrote, 
God, why have you left me? My world is empty. I wander alone through quiet days. I live with silence surrounding me. Where are your words? Where's the comforter you promised? So many of us could relate to this. She wrote, I remember those days filled with your spirit. Your inspiration was on my lips and in my writing. You laid out an exciting adventure, a life filled with possibilities. You stayed with me and encouraged me. My heart was on fire. Today, I'd settle for quiet conversation, a gentle whisper or even a small hint of your presence. She's working her way through the petition, and then here comes the resolution. She says, but I will pray again and wait in faith. You promised to be with me always, so maybe I left you. It's beautiful, Susan. In verses 1 through 3 of this psalm, the psalmist names his intense feelings of longing for the presence of God. Uh, As the deer pants for streams of water. That was my favorite hymn growing up as a child. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When's my chance? When can I go and meet with God? Because my tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? The psalmist names that in addition to feeling the absence of God or God's distance, his enemies are taunting him saying, where is your God? It's the people who think that religion is the opiate of the masses, the opioid of the masses. They're like, look, there's no God. You're hoping in vain. In that moment, transitioning to verse 4, the psalmist remembers times when things felt different. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I, I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. It's like, man, things used to be so great with God. I used to feel so close, and yet, what's the deal now? Now, based on my own life experience and what I've observed, it seems to be the case to me that God often incubates or births our trust in Him with feelings of the awareness of His presence. Some of you could go back to your story, and there are things that maybe your rational mind now, looking back, could not explain. Like, I don't know what to make sense of this, but God did something in my life. He did something in my heart. It seems to be the case that God often births our trust in Him with these feelings or awareness of His presence, but it also seems to be the case that in the course of time that God weans us off of it so that we can learn to persevere even amid feelings of His absence. I remember being a kid, you will perhaps be unsurprised to know this, I was a zealous kid. (laughs) And uh, I'm really grateful. I grew up at Woodlake Assembly of God. The building was at 31st between Sheridan and Memorial. And uh, we would go down to Children's Church, Mimo and Dusty and Danny. And we were five, six, seven years old. And and we would do this sign to each other, which meant let's huddle up and pray together. It was so sweet. And we're praying for God bless Aunt Marjorie and, you know, all the family members who are in the hospital and just children praying for each other. And God just just put affection in my heart for him when I was really young. And then when I was a teenager, a new youth pastor came to our church, and he loved God so passionately. And I thought, I want to love God like Justin does. 
And so I emulated everything Justin did and, and loved God passionately. I, I went to a private Christian high school in town, and I was giving the devotions on the intercom every day my senior year and leading worship in chapels. And I just had this vision of, like, revival. And Emily will say, oh, this is a embarrassing memory. Before maybe my junior year, senior year, I put together this, like, vision sheet about how God was going to bring revival, and it had, like, ten different fonts, and revival was always a yearbook font. And uh, I was so confident that God was going to use my school to be a blessing to the community around it. It's just zealous. And I get to be 16, 17, 18 years old, and, and things are shifting for me, as they do. Um, kid, you know, like teenagers, don't be surprised when like, you start to question the things that you inherited. That's part of growing up. Don't be surprised by it. You're going to make your faith your own. God is going to be faithful to you. Don't be worried. But in those years, I start to ask questions. I'd had an experience with the Holy Spirit, but there were some avenues for knowing and loving God that were unfamiliar to me. We didn't, use, uh, we didn't really study the Scriptures in a deep way, and I didn't know how to engage my critical thinking and my reason with regard to my faith. And all I knew of church history was the day of Pentecost and the Azusa Street Revival that gave birth to the Assemblies of God. And I started to, to pray, and it felt like this distance is growing. And it started a, a journey of like six, seven, or eight years where it seemed like, like God wasn't speaking to me anymore. There had been some like milestone moments in my life as a child and as a teenager that like I've built my life on, truly. Third grade and seventh grade felt like the Lord said things to me that have, like I have been following like since childhood. And now I'm in this spot where, like, I don't know where I fit anymore. I definitely don't fit in this kind of charismatic Pentecostal world. And so I go on this, this journey where I'm trying to find home base and trying to find God's best for me. And so I'm all over town in churches. I'm leading worship at one of the services at First Presbyterian Church. And I'm leading worship at a church plant in Bixby where I'm the only non-family member of the whole church. I did a Bible study with First Baptist Broken Arrow, and I spent some time with Terry, the Episcopal priest, out in southeast Tulsa, and I did Life Church a little bit, and I played bass at Victory a little bit, and I'm all over the place and depressed. Depressed. And it wasn't until a pastor put that word on me a couple of years after that I realized, like, this was a really dark season for me, where I'd kind of built my life on following Jesus and figuring out what ministry looked like, and he's not taking my calls anymore, and I don't fit anywhere anymore, and the low point of it was being a missionary in Honduras. And Emily and I are newlyweds, and I have no idea what I can contribute, and God is not taking my calls, and I feel just utterly lost. And after Honduras, Emily and I came back, and I lucked into a job at Asbury. God miraculously opened doors for me to work at Asbury in South Tulsa. And uh, the senior pastor, Tom, was so good to me and spent time with me and talked me into seminary and I'm learning and I'm stretching, but, but there's this gap between God and me. And I remember I was at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, and I was looking back on my own spiritual journey. I'm gaining a lot of theological knowledge. I'm gaining more competence in ministry, but I feel like I've lost the zeal and the passion that I had as a child, and I'm feeling a sense of shame and even a little bit of abandonment by God. And I went to a communion service over lunch at Asbury Seminary, and um, as we went forward and we kneeled to receive communion, the, somebody gave a little devotional, a little homily, one of the most encouraging verses I've ever heard in the Bible. You're going to want to get a tattoo of this probably. It's from Ecclesiastes, and it says, The end of a matter is better than the beginning, and the day of your death better than the day of your birth. <laughs> this is the word I get. 
And uh, I, I was like, this makes no sense. And those were the words that were spoken, and they're, they're going around in my mind, and I kneel to receive Holy Communion, and, and I can't explain to you what happened, but my heart was just like, just like squeezed like a sponge in that moment, and I started to weep like I had not wept in five, six, seven years, weeping uncontrollably to the point of embarrassment that I left and went to the room next door and in a fetal position on the floor, I'm just weeping because I felt his presence. And, and I felt like he said to me in that moment, do not be afraid. I am with you. Don't try to recreate the past. The end of a matter is better than the beginning. Now, the, the story is so exceptional to me because most of my spiritual life has not been like that. And that, that five, six, seven year span of my life was, was the opposite of that. And I felt like God was just saying, I'm with you in the middle of this. And this was for me kind of a monument in the desert. You know, the Israelites wandered all through the desert, but from time to time they built these altars. Abraham did everywhere he went. They built these altars, these reminders. God showed up for us at this moment. And that was one of those moments in 2012. It was a monument in the desert for me that when I begin to doubt or to wonder, I just go back. He said, don't be afraid. He said, I'm with you. Don't try to recreate the past. So I'm not going to. I'm going to assume that he's with me. This leads me to a key idea that's easy to understand and difficult to really adapt and to practice. And the idea is that we put our faith in the faithfulness of God, not our feelings of His faithfulness in the moment. We put our faith in the faithfulness of God, not our feelings or our awareness of His faithfulness in the moment. Now, our feelings can be wonderful and very deceptive things. Dwight Schrute to Michael, your heart is a wonderful thing, but it makes some terrible choices. We have to be aware of how deceptive our feelings can be and how limited our perspective is. If we allow ourselves to be guided solely by our feelings or lack thereof, we're often going to end up in places where we don't want to be. I've heard stories, some of you may have lived this, of farmers uh, primarily in the northern United States where um, in the winter they'd have these very intense blizzards. And they still have to go out to the barn and care for the animals, but there's such a whiteout of snow, they can't put one foot in front of the other, and they, know, they don't know how to get to the barn, even though spatially they know generally where it should be. So what they would do is they would tie a rope from their house to the barn so that when they couldn't see the step in front of them, they just need to hold the line and trust that it's going to get them where they need to go. If they just keep taking steps forward and trusting the rope, they'll get to their destination. And in a similar way, we keep taking next steps and holding on to Him even when we can't see because our faith is in His faithfulness, not in our feelings of His faithfulness in the moment. Now, notice how in Psalm 5, the psalmist simultaneously explores his pain and coaches himself through it. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? I don't get it. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Now, again and again, the psalmist asks these why questions. The, the why questions represent the process of reflection and looking inward. It's something we have to learn to do. It's something that's very good to do. But the psalmist also advises and encourages his own soul, saying, put your hope in God and you're going to get through this. 
You don't know how. It may not feel true. Put your hope in God and you're going to get through this. This exact phrasing is also in verse 11 where the the, the psalmist says, Why am I so sad? Trust Him and you're going to make it through. I was talking to some friends in the church the other day. My apology that I did not ask permission for this story. I'm not naming you. But friends, we're looking back on a difficult season of life and thinking about uh, others in their apprentice group who are sharing their stories and said, you know, we had this hard thing, but God brought me through. And I really loved and respected their candor in, in sharing, you know what, like, I look back on that difficult season and I don't see God's hand in it. I like, like, we did get through it because of each other, but I look back and I think, where was God in the middle of that? I'm, I'm not really sure. And I really appreciated their, their candor and their honesty in sharing their story like this. And I think it's important for us to know we don't have to manufacture feelings that feel like PG or like GP, God, you know, God approved, I guess that's GA. The thing that I said to them that I think is, is helpful for all of us to know is that it's okay to acknowledge you don't feel him now, but be open to seeing your own story differently later. It's okay to acknowledge you don't feel him now. Be open to acknowledging your story later, story differently later. Uh, I generally make sense of the world through the lens of the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. It is a real exercise of my will not to mention them both every week. But there's this book, the Chronicles of Narnia, (laughs) called The Horse and His Boy. I read it, wasn't crazy about it. Three weeks later, I realized what it was about, and I was like, oh, that's great. And tells the story of this, this kid who's born into tragedy, born into suffering, uh, is left to fend for himself. And he goes on this great grand journey, running from danger into danger, and has this moment where he encounters a person who changes everything and, and, and discovers in meeting this person a hidden presence in retrospect. And he realized, Oh my gosh, all those times I thought I was alone, you were actually with me the whole time, guiding me. I just couldn't see you. I think back to the fall of, of 2019. Um, Emily was, was 15 weeks pregnant with our son, and I was in the Poconos doing, like, on this trip that I had, like, wanted to do for years with a group of pastors, and we were hiking, and I come back to three missed calls on my phone. Uh, forgive me, those of you who've heard my story a couple of times. And three missed calls is scary from Emily. And I call back, and she'd been to see our doctor, and at 15 weeks, we lost our son in utero. Never been through that. You know, thanks be to God, we'd always had boring pregnancies, like the kind of boring you want to that point. And, and now it's like, oh my gosh, our kid's gone. And that night, I've got a little bit before my, you know, quick flight there, planes, trains, and automobiles to get home to Tulsa. I was with this group of pastors, and, and one of them prayed the prayer that I couldn't pray, and they said, God, it would cost you nothing to intervene and to make that little heartbeat. And, you know, 16 hours later, I get home to Tulsa, and I'm holding Emily, and she's praying in our kitchen. She said, God, it would cost you nothing to make this little heartbeat. And we went to see our doctor that we love so much, and, and, and he was gone. I mean, so many of you in this room have walked through it. Some of you have walked through much more difficult situations, or you've lost multiple children. You know, can't compare sufferings, but um, we were so shocked and, and surprised. 
Now, I look back on those moments now, a couple of years removed, and when I look back on that season now, I look back and I think about how we were so held by God in those moments. In, the, in our inability to hold our son, we were held by our family and our friends. I look back and think about how loved we were. And for me, I can't look back on the story of the loss of our son, Philip, that without, like, that, that pain is for me wed to that joy, and that story in part has been rewritten despite our prayer not being answered in the way that we had hoped for. I see it now as a story in many ways of presence and not a story primarily of absence. Now, uh, thinking about the reality of suffering, thinking about the, those, those fear, feelings that all of us will have from time to time about the distance of God, I want to give a couple of tools or, or words of encouragement that I think may be of use to you on the front side of suffering. We're all going to face the ultimate vulnerability of death unless Christ returns before we pass. But on the front side of suffering, I want to give you some encouragements, and then this may be of use to those of you who are going through it now. And I will just say, there are no quick fixes here. I did a wedding last night, I officiated a wedding last night, and I'm hanging around, and I was talking to this uh, one guy, and uh, someone who knew the guy came up, and he said to me, pointing at the guy that I just met, he's like, you can't save him, trust me. <laughs> he said, he's too far gone. Like, okay. And I didn't say it, but I was thinking, like, I can't save him anyway. And I can't save any of you. Like, I can't press a button that just magically makes it all better. Uh, ultimately, the underlying truth that, that I would commend to each of you is to throw yourself at the, at the wisdom and the mercy of Jesus who loves you and trust that he's going to make all things new. But I do want to offer you four encouragements in thinking about the distance of God. The first is especially helpful before tragedy strikes. And this comes to me from Tom Harrison at Asbury. And Tom said, we need a theology of suffering. We need to develop a theology of suffering, a, a grid or a framework for interpreting all the bad stuff that happens in the world in a way to help reconcile it with our faith. Because one of the times that we are most acutely aware or most intensely feel the absence of God is when tragedy strikes. Why didn't he intervene? It would cost you nothing. How do we make sense of evil and suffering and sin? Well, in a very basic way, I would say that the gospel teaches us that the world was created good. But as a result of sin, a kind of chaos has been unleashed into the world. It's seen in natural evil, meaning, you know, our, our bodies are prone to sickness and suffering and decay and ultimately death. We have, uh, we have terrible things that happen in the natural world. I think of this kind of like if you've ever been in a racquetball court, imagine a million bouncy balls going, bouncing, you know, up and down, left and right, all over the court, and just taking people out indiscriminately left and right. I think for no particular reason other than the state of the world, we get sick. And some of you know what it's like to get the cancer diagnosis or to get the phone call that brings you to your knees. We see that there's, there is the reality of suffering in the natural world as a result of sin. It just takes people out left and right. But there are also consequences in the moral order, meaning that people make really terrible and destructive choices. 
And some of you are reeling, not because of things that you in particular did, but because of like your, what your parents did or didn't do for you. People make terrible choices, and those choices and the consequences of those choices snowball and have an effect on us. And the reality is that God so respects human free will and self-determination that for the time being, He permits us to make even destructive choices. And we do need to remember that though He doesn't always intervene now, He will not tolerate natural and moral evil forever. There are times He intervenes providentially and you say, thanks be to God. But He does not universally intervene in this age. But He will in the age to come. I think it takes, it's helpful to study and to take to heart uh, how the gospel trains us to understand the nature of the world now so that when suffering comes or when we feel the absence of God, we have a way of understanding it and explaining it even to ourselves. We need a theology of suffering. The second encouragement I would give you, hey, wasn't the first one really encouraging? <laughs> the second encouragement, encouragement I would give you is to stay in the conversation. When I say stay in the conversation, I, I mean this. One of the, the biggest takeaways for me in studying the Psalms is those heartfelt cries, those like, God, I hate my enemies, slit their throat kinds of things, were actually written in the Bible. Like those words, those, the full range of human emotions were expressed to God in Scripture, giving us space to say those kinds of things too. It's keeping us in the conversation with God even when He feels like He's not talking back to us. And so in, in wrestling with the distance of God, keep yourself in the conversation. Pour out your soul to the Lord. Uh, like Susan, like Sandy, like, like so many of us, uh, write a psalm of lament. Name your feelings. Tell others in the Christian community. Listen to worship songs. Keep holding the line even when you can't see the next step. I think it's also helpful to read stories of other people who have weathered the storm of those intense feelings of the distance of God. Uh, famously, St. John of the Cross wrote his poem, The Dark Night of the Soul, and others have written about that. Pete Gregg wrote a really great book called God on Mute, talking about his wife's, this is a guy who led the 24-7 prayer movement in the UK, which came to the US, and his wife is dealing with a debilitating, uh, ongoing health issue, and God's not answering the prayer in the way that they want. Keep yourself in the conversation. The third thing I would say is uh, I want to encourage you to remember that the distance won't last forever. I'm not a winter guy. I don't care for it. Um, and in Tulsa, too, everything is brown. Like, there are no flowers. Everything is brown. It's cold. Once you get into the new year, it's always winter and never Christmas. It's dark at, like, 2 in the afternoon. You know, it's depressing, and then spring rolls around. And it's like we forgot what it's like to have the sun up at 6 o'clock at night and like to get some vitamin D straight from the source. And, and we smell the tulips as they come out of the ground. And it's like, oh, seasons do change. And sometimes you've been in a season, perhaps a length like mine, five, six, seven years, where you feel like God is just distant, distant, distant. And sometimes... The seasons change, and, and there's the, the refreshment of spring that comes. I hope that you'll keep yourself in conversation long enough that you might see your own spring coming. It sometimes sneaks up on you.
Other times, for those, those in our church who, who struggle with ongoing health issues, I think especially those who have chronic fatigue syndrome or deal with chronic pain or there's the chronic pain of missing someone who used to be here but that's not here anymore. Sometimes we live with enduring pains and longings that will only be resolved when Christ returns. And I like how Sandra McCracken saying, if it's not okay, it is not the end. This is not okay, so I know this is not, this is not the end, because all will be well. The Lord himself shall come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. The heavens and the earth will be forever reunited and recreated, and God himself will be among us and will be our God, and he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. If it's not okay... It's not the end. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis and the Screwtape Letters. He's, he's writing, obviously it's a work of fiction, of one mentor demon writing to his, I think it's his nephew, and he's coaching them on, here's how you really screw with the Christians. And he says, really interestingly in the book, he says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. The distance won't last forever. The last thing that I want to encourage you to do quite practically is that we should ask for his manifest presence. Uh, the week after Emily and I lost our son Philip, we were in, in California, and getting to know Bishop Todd, who's the bishop of, of our diocese, we can talk about that later if you don't know what that means, and, and Todd was just guiding through us, us through a simple three-word prayer, come Holy Spirit. Now again, this is a kind of accommodating language in prayer. The Spirit is already among us. Wherever two or three are gathered, He's with us. Uh, but but it's, it's saying, Lord, would you manifest your presence in a way that like we're aware of you? Some of us may not have the faith to ask for that, or perhaps you've never even thought about asking for that, but I commend it to you. Come, Holy Spirit, manifest your presence in my life. Whenever I say stuff like, I feel like God told me, I often preface it with, this could be indigestion from bad burritos, but I think God said this. And some of you, especially if you didn't grow up in a Pentecostal, charismatic kind of world, open to the Holy Spirit, might need to put some of those prefaces on it. But I'd encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to manifest His presence in your life. Maybe the manifestation of that presence could be answered prayer. Maybe it's just like me on my knees at Asbury Seminary, just struck with an awareness that God hadn't forgotten me. But I just trust that the Spirit's at work. I trust that God, ours is a God who wants to be found. So I commend to you to ask the Holy Spirit to manifest the Spirit's presence in your life. Uh, one of my seminary professors, Bob Stamps, said, Our faith needs something to do and something to touch. The woman with the issue of blood needed something to do. She needed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And once she touched it, she became aware that his power was flowing into her and she was being made well. And one of the places throughout Christian history that people have been aware, have done something and have been aware of, of the presence of Jesus has been at the communion table. 
And some of us, certainly as we come to the table, this is a time to remember what Jesus has done for us, but this is also a time for us to commune with Jesus, to be in his presence. And I would encourage you today as you come and every week as you come that you would come with faith, asking at the table that he would manifest his presence to you. So you come doing something with your hands, praying, I am empty-handed and in need of you. And it's something to touch. We're given this bread, this juice, cracker, but you know what I mean. We're given something to touch, and as you touch it, receive it in faith. Receive it like the woman reaching out and touching the hem of his robe. Receive it as if Jesus himself were putting his hand on your shoulder, and receive it in faith. What you need from him, ask from him. Lord, I just, need, I just need to remember that you love me. I just need to remember that you exist. I need healing in my body. I need a breakthrough. A- ask for what you need, but ju- a- give him a blank check. Manifest your presence in my life. We're going to suffer. We're going through, through those seasons where there's a sense of despair or distance in our life with God, but remember this will not last forever. The spring will come. The flowers will bloom. You may experience those kind of, that kind of seasonality in your life with God now, or it might not be until the age to come when the veil is lifted and we see Him who our heart desires. But hold on to the line and keep placing your faith in the faithfulness of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in these moments... I feel so acutely aware of my inability to enact anything that I've preached. Because I can't press a button and control you. And so we do what we can. We just humbly make the request of you, Lord Jesus, that you would do the things that you promised. You said... The last days I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. You said it. You said you'd send the comforter, the advocate who'd guide us into all truth. You said you'd be with us always to the very end of the age. And so we're asking you, Lord Jesus, to do the stuff that you promised. I pray that you would manifest your presence in the lives of the people of our church. For the person or for the couple that's locked into chronic seriousness and they can't figure their way out of this conflict they feel, manifest your presence. Let a new wind blow. For those who rationally can't figure out how to keep believing and yet they've had these experiences with you, manifest your presence. For those who've come in today just plagued with worry and fear about something, I pray that you'd manifest your presence and do something. And yet, Lord Jesus, even in the absence of you answering the prayer in the way that we expect, I pray that you would buoy us and give us grace to keep holding the line and to keep trusting in your faithfulness, not in our feelings of it. And as we come to receive communion, Lord Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on this bread and wine and make it be so much more than just that but a means by which through the Spirit we experience the power and the presence of Christ who reigns at the right hand. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we love you. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. 
If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.